Take your Bible and go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And while you turn there, we are almost rounding third and heading home on our first series, which has been through the book of Colossians, Christ Sufficient, Christ Supreme. And uh, in the next few weeks, we'll be wrapping up this study and then uh, moving on, and I'll have more to say about that at a later point. But um, just, again, a reminder of how grateful, I am so grateful to be able to stand here and preach God's Word and how grateful we are to be a part of this church family. And uh, so we're going to read Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2 through 6. Before we do, let's pray again. God, may you bless the preaching of your word. May the gospel be made known clearly. And may you open hearts to receive Christ if someone has never been saved and born again. And that you would open our hearts, all of our hearts, that we may receive your truth and be sanctified through it. Pray for, I pray for a cleansing of sin and of my mind and my conscience that, Lord, that the word will be clearly communicated and that we'll walk away knowing exactly what you would have us to know from this passage. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Stand with me as we read God's word together. The message title today is Gospel-Driven Prayer. And we're going to read verses 2 down through verse 6 of Colossians chapter 4. Scripture says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary in the 19th century to the nation of China, he was born on May the 21st, 1832, in Barnsley, England, to a couple, James and Amelia Taylor. His mother and father were godly parents, dedicating him to the Lord before his birth, not only that in prayer that he would be saved, but that he would enter into ministry and become a missionary. Though he developed an interest in spiritual things through the teaching of his parents and the influence and their influence. Um, he, he developed an interest in spiritual things, but once he became a teenager, right around the age of 15, he, the world began to allure him away. And at the age of 15, he began to work for a bank. His father wanted him to get out of their home a little bit and to begin to get experience working in, 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 in industry, in the banking industry. And so he began working for a bank. And there at the bank... He met people that were his co-workers who mocked the Christian faith and enticed him to develop an appetite for pleasure and particularly for material wealth. Well, soon he lost all interest in spiritual things and became apathetic and in some degree walked away from the faith that he had been brought up in. And in God's providence, about two years into this position in the bank, he developed an eye infection, 
and it caused him had to leave his post there and return home. And uh, he was about 17 when he returned home, and he began to work in his father's shop. And uh, as he began to work with his father again, his father uh, admonished him biblically, perhaps we would say harshly admonished in some ways, desperate for his son to return to the Lord. But it was his mother that would have the greatest impact on him, her tenderness, her spiritual care and counsel towards him. And, and, and so the more her, she began to try to help him spiritually, she really committed in her soul to pray urgently for her son and his salvation. And so it's interesting because one day his mother went on a short trip, a holiday getaway, And while she was away, where she was staying, she was compelled to take a whole day and just to pray for her son, Hudson. So she locked herself in her room, and for hours she pleaded that God would show mercy on Hudson and would save him by his grace. And in the midst of this day of prayer, she suddenly stopped And she believed that God had answered her prayer. And she went from praying for his salvation to praising God that he indeed had been saved. Now, it's interesting because the very day and the very time frame that she was praying, Hudson was at home. And he had wandered that afternoon into his father's library, remember, while his mom was praying. He went to the library and he pulled an old pamphlet, little booklet, a little sermon track that used to be printed back then. And he was reading in this, he was reading from this pamphlet. He was reading a story about a miner, coal miner who had become a Christian. And he came across these words. Isn't it just crazy how God converts people? He read these words, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it was just those words that awakened in his soul the realization that everything necessary for his salvation was complete through Christ. He fell to his knees, put the pamphlet down, and called out to God to save him and committed his life to Jesus Christ. He would soon learn that at the same moment that he was reading and even calling out to the Lord. His mother was doing the same thing miles away. And when his mom returned home, he, he went to his mother and he said, Mom, I, I, Mother, I have news that I want to share with you. And before he could say anything, she replied, I already know, Hudson. I knew when you were converted because it was an answer to my prayers. And so with that, it impresses upon us not only the spectacular way that God works providentially in our lives, but how he answers prayer. And I'll tell you what it does for us. It makes us wonder, why don't we pray with that kind of fervency and with that kind of faithfulness? 
That openly, opening in illustration about Amelia Taylor and the conversion of her son folds right into the passage that we've read this morning as the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Colossae and he is impressing upon these believers the urgency and the importance of prayer. He has applied the gospel to all of our relationships in the church and how the gospel plays itself out in our relationships with one another. He has also talked about how the gospel applies to our relationships in the home, and then in in indirect application to work as we labor day by day. And now what he does is, is he includes his instructions to this community of believers and turns his attention to our interaction with people who don't know Christ, who are unbelievers that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. And like Amelia Taylor praying for her son, Paul here urges the church to pray. Pray broadly about all sorts of things, but pray specifically in regard to our witness and our interaction with people who do not know the gospel. And so the key truth that I want us to just kind of unpack here this morning is this. The gospel must drive our prayers as we live before and witness to unbelievers exactly what you see in Amelia Taylor and Hudson Taylor's testimony. The gospel must drive our prayers as we live before and we witness to unbelievers. And so the question then that we ask is, well, in what ways does the gospel drive our prayers to this end and for this purpose? And what we will see is that the gospel drives our prayers in three very specific ways. It equips us to intercede for others. It empowers us. It empowers us to walk in wisdom. And it enables us to speak with grace. Those three things prayer will will do in our lives as we live day by day and we interact with people who do not know Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first thing here. The first thing I want you to see that prayer, gospel-driven prayer does is that it equips us to intercede for others. Notice in verse 2, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And so then what he does is, is he explains how we pray. And with the word continue, in other translations it'll say devote yourselves to prayer. What Paul does in that single phrase is he demonstrates the importance of prayer to our spiritual lives. Like breathing for oxygen to sustain physical life, prayer is assumed necessary to the Christian life. Do you know why? Do you know why he says why, why prayer is necessary to the Christian life? It's simple because life is hard. Ministry is hard. The day-to-day can become difficult, whether we're talking about in the home or in the church or in the world. And what prayer does is prayer invites us, listen, through Christ and his shed blood on the cross, prayer invites us 
to approach the throne of our Heavenly Father in complete dependence on Him, knowing that He will receive us with grace and mercy, and, he, and, and prayer allows us to come before Him and say, this is hard. I need help because I am helpless. That's what prayer invites us to do. It invites us to admit that we need everything that He has supplied us in our all-sufficient Savior, and there is nothing in ourselves that we can rely on that can get us through the daily grind of life, through the daily task of ministry, and living in a fallen world even as redeemed sinners. We need God for everything. It's kind of like when my son will come up to me, and the other day he had this little toy car that he was working on, and I walked by, and he had a screwdriver, and he's trying to un- he was trying to unscrew it, and I said, Elias, do you need me to help you? And he said, no. Okay. So I walked away. And then shortly I was in the dining room, and then he kind of wandered in. He's still, you know, messing with it. And then he looked at me, and he says, I need help. And then I gladly responded, and I helped him because he couldn't have done the task on his own. And so in the same way, our Heavenly Father, through Christ, invites us to approach his, his throne and joyfully admit, I don't have it together, I can't figure it out, I can't do this, I need you and all that you have provided in Christ Jesus. I hope you're with me this morning. I mean, how's your week gone? What sins have you been fighting What troubles have arisen in your home? What people that you love have gone astray or are teetering on the balance of even maybe deconstructing their faith? What burdens are you carrying? What trials have you entered into? I mean, these things are real and they impress upon us the reality of of, of why we need help and why prayer is that tool that enables us to seek God for help. And so what Paul does here is, is he provides clear adverbs that apply to his command for them to pray. Continue to pray, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Do you see the adverbs there? Those adverbs challenge how we pray, individually and corporately, because let's admit it, too often our prayers are trivial, they're trite, they're temporary, they focus on the material and the, and the earthly rather than the eternal. And so they invite us, they instruct us on how to pray. Scripture has a way of identifying our deepest needs because we don't have the ability to really determine what we really need. And so he says, pray steadfastly. The word steadfastly indicates to hold on to, to not give up, to struggle in. So when he says steadfast, he's basically saying remain in a state of prayer. Don't abandon prayer. Don't give up prayer. Don't conclude it's pointless, it's worthless, it doesn't mean anything. Don't assume just because you may feel silence and it seems like you're just speaking into the air. Don't assume that God does not hear you because in Christ he does. Instead, we are to go on. That's what he means by steadfast. To not stop. Go down to verse 12. And as he's listing out the various 
people that have been influential in gospel ministry. In verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Listen to this. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Struggling in his prayers. Wrestling with God like Jacob. He's struggling in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. So in that same way, we are to pray steadfastly. What it means is, it's just the basic discipline of prayer. Setting aside time to pray. Actually doing prayer. Speaking to God. Selecting methods that might be helpful. And then just simply actually praying and casting all our cares upon him. I mean, that's what it means to steadfastly prayer. I could give you many helps and many things, but I just simply think we need to focus here to see Paul is challenging the church, pray steadfastly. But then he challenges them to pray watchfully. Do you see it in the text? He says being watchful. Being watchful means to be alert and aware. It means to be awake and to be paying attention. You ever been in a car with someone who has a tendency to fall asleep? Not that I have that problem, but I'm just simply saying, have you? Right? And you're just constantly like looking at them because they're dozing. I I give hints to my family. Like it's freezing cold, the windows come down. I'm like slapping my face, pulling my hair, what what I have left, and and they know that I'm trying to stay awake. That's what this means. It means to be watchful, to be alert. To be aware, Jesus says in Matthew 26 and 41, remember the disciples kept falling asleep as he was in the garden praying and he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, it's weak. And so to pray watchfully is to realize that there are dangers within and there are dangers without. Think about it. Like this church, the dangers were the same. I mean, we've already seen in Colossians where he tells them to kill sin. There's the danger of indwelling sin. The flesh is weak. There are many temptations. And so we need to pray watchfully because we can't rely on our own strength. There's dangers without. There are heretics that have come into the church to try to distract them and deviate them from the gospel. There's real danger of the church here in Colossae to become divided and to become disunified and then to begin to to attack one another. The weakness of the flesh, the division in the church. Add to that the discouragement of various trials that they would have experienced. You see, it doesn't matter what age we live in as believers, we must pray watchfully because such watchful awareness reminds us of our constant need for rescue through Jesus Christ. I'm always standing in need. And that's what prayer reminds me of. 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says, Be watchful, sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We pray because we know that there are enemies without and enemies within. We know the, the weakness of the flesh. We know the wickedness of the world that can allure us away from Christ. And we, therefore, need to be watchful. But then he says, pray thankfully. So look at the third thing. Pray thankfully. He says, in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so thankfulness, he ends with thankfulness there. And and we already know that he began this letter with prayer. If you go back to chapter 1 and you read verses 3 through verse 8, 
Paul says that he is pray, he prays for them, giving thanks for their salvation. And then in verse 9 through 12, he prays for their growth. But he, he's already expressed reasons that they should be thankful. And so here, as he closes the letter, he says, pray watchfully, pray steadfastly, but pray thankfully. You know why? Because thankfulness reminds us all that God has done for us as his redeemed people. And as believers, we must express thankfulness to God for the salvation that he's given us in Christ and all the spiritual blessings that he has brought to us that gives us assurance. Again, think of, think of what thankfulness does. You know what thankfulness does? It reminds us that God does graciously answer our prayers. If you're saved this morning, your salvation is an answer to someone's prayer. Someone who pleaded God to open your heart to the truth and to save you by his grace. Again, think of Amelia Taylor. Think of the joy that she experienced as she walked in and to already in her soul confirm that God was going to answer her prayer and then to see her son confess Christ very right to her. So when you pray, thank God for simple things. Thank him for his son. Thank him for the cross. Thank him for the basic essential truths of the gospel that are the basis of your salvation. Give him thanks for your home and for your family, for the people that he's placed in your life to shape you and to point you to Christ. Thank him for your church family, for the joy of fellowship, and even for the difficulties and trials that come in all of it. Give him thanks. The greatest medicine for a sour attitude in the heart is simple gratitude from the soul to a sovereign God who has been abundantly good to all of us. So Paul here, as he shows us that prayer equips us to intercede for others, he is beginning, the, uh, uh, in some sense, we pray for ourselves in this way. But then in verse 3, he shows us what we pray. And so here's where we see a, shy, a slight shift as he, as he moves us towards pray, as he gives his prayer request. Look at verse 3. At the same time, while you're giving thanks and you're praying watchfully and you're praying steadfastly, pray also for us. I like that because that's the Apostle Paul. And nobody, no matter what role they have or ministry they're in, no one escapes the desperate need for prayer. And Paul establishes that. Even our Lord did in his life and ministry as he took even, even days on end to go into the wilderness and pray and commune with the Father. And so he says, he says pray also for us, and look at what he prays, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And if you just, if you just underline the word that, that tells you what Paul requests them to pray for. And so once again, look at the substance of his request. The substance of his requests are driven by the gospel. 
He prays for specific opportunities to share Jesus. And additionally, there's a noticeable pattern here. Catch it. We pray to God before we speak to others. Do you hear that? We pray to God before we preach to others. You know why? Because only God can save. Only God can open the heart. We don't come to anybody with some kind of, some kind of clever rhetoric or some kind of trick that we can, we can do or some kind of strategy that we can mobilize that's going to get a result. We can't produce the result. Only God can produce the result. So we pray to God to save because only He can save. Now what you see here is a beautiful blend of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Pray that God will open doors for the gospel. That's, that, that's, that's the first what to pray for. So he's equipping us to pray for others, to intercede. Pray that God will open a door to us for the word. This is about the gospel. Do you see that? Pray that God will open us a door for us so that we can build our platform. That's not what he says. Pray that God will open a door for us so we can preach Christ. So we can share Jesus. I mean, you have to see that. He is so gospel-centric. And so, by doing though, he's showing us that it is all about the gospel. And we know because he says the mystery of Christ. And the mystery of Christ is simply the message of salvation that God has sent his son into the world to be the savior, not to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles. And that there is salvation in no other name among men, given among men under heaven, there's no salvation in any other name except the name of Jesus Christ. And so when he says an open door for the mystery of the gospel, he's just saying open a door so we can share the message of salvation that God has sent his son to save sinners and that his son came into the world and went to the cross and he died on the cross to atone for our sins, was buried and was raised from the dead so that all who would repent of their sin and believe on Jesus Christ, that they will be saved. Pray that doors of opportunity will open for that message to be shared. And if you're here today and you're not saved, that's the message of salvation. What will save you is not how much you pray, but whether or not you turn in repentance toward God and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, he says, pray for these open doors. Grant us opportunities for me. Pray that God will grant us opportunities for me and for my team to preach salvation. And the message is so important. And you catch this. Look at it. He says, to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul always does this. He kind of He'll kind of go off into a stream of consciousness. This time it's short. He says, on which, on account of which I'm in prison. This gospel is so important. It's so significant. It's more important than anything else going on in the universe. And I'm in prison for it. I'm under house arrest for it. Where he is writing these prison epistles to churches. That's how important the gospel is. Christian church, what he wants the church to realize is there's nothing more important than the gospel. Nothing more important than the gospel. 
So on one level, we we pray for those that will for the the man that will stand and preach in the pulpit that he will preach Christ for missionaries on the field who will preach Christ. But we also pray that God will open doors of opportunity for all of us to go out and to be able to speak Christ into people's lives. And so that's how important this message is. And such a prayer demonstrates the urgency of salvation. Because if Hudson Taylor dies and he's not saved, he goes to hell. And if sinners die unconverted, they go to hell forever. And that's why we should pray that doors will open for the gospel to be received. But that leads to the second thing there, that the gospel, after he gives his little stream of consciousness, he says that the gospel will be preached clearly. And his words are, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now that's just, that is really important. Pray that I just preach the message Clearly. In some ways, he said, just pray that I don't get in the way. (laughs) Don't allow me to get in the way. But instead, enable me to present Jesus clearly. That if there's a child in the room, they can understand. And it doesn't matter how educated a person is, that they too can understand I get it, that's a work of the Spirit, but the point here is, is that Paul understood. He doesn't want to come in and try to demonstrate his rhetoric, his ability in oratory. That's what he's getting at. Read Corinthians. Pray that I don't get in the way, that I don't come and try to impress people with my education and with my oratory skills or my giftings or my abilities. Just pray that I come in and I preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That as the word is proclaimed, that it is understood as the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit brings light to each truth. And so that's what he's driving at. And, and to pair something that's not here in Colossians and Ephesians, listen to what he says to the church at Ephesus. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and pray for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, he doesn't mean he doesn't prepare or study, because he was committed to preparing and studying. And we know he instructed Timothy to do the same. But here, he's praying that God, he, he asks that they would pray that God, that, that the Lord will give him boldness as he proclaims the mystery of the gospel, especially in places of hostility. So as we kind of bring all this down, this first point, prayer equips us to intercede for others. We're asked this question, will you devote yourself to prayer in this way? What strikes you? I need to pray more steadfastly, more watchfully. I need to pray more thankfully. I need to pray for those who are preaching the word and teaching the word. But here's a prompt for you. Pray for God to open doors for the gospel to be shared and lift up those who preach the word. Now that leads to a second observation about what prayer does. Secondly, prayer empowers us to walk in wisdom. So if you look at verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, this is again just kind of paralleling what he's already said. He's continuing 
this process of interacting with unbelievers. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so here, we see that prayer empowers us to walk in wisdom. How do we walk in wisdom? Well, we should live wisely toward outsiders. I mean, isn't that what he says in verse 5? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And so with, with that word wisdom, he's denoting we need to be strategic. Another word we've used here lately is intentional. Be tactful in the way we live. Paul here makes it clear that believers in the church have a relational obligation to the rest of society. So let me, let, let me give you some practical thoughts. So if we're going th- to think on the level Paul wants this church to think, then the first thing we need to realize is we shouldn't view the people around us as our enemies. They're not. I'm not suggesting there's not a spiritual warfare going on. There is, and there is a war- real enemy. But the reality is, is that the people around us are our colleagues, our neighbors, our classmates. For that matter, we have people in our families who are unbelievers, I don't think you're going to walk into a Mother's Day gathering and say, I have an announcement. All of you are my enemies if you're not in Christ. That's not going to go well. It's not going to go well at all. And so they're not your enemies, no matter how much they differ from you in worldview or lifestyle. But secondly, I would say, engage people rationally and relationally. I think what we need to realize in our own moment right now is that we need to really avoid two extremes. One is culture war. You know what culture war is? I have to fight everyone. (laughs) Have you picked up on that? I gotta fight everybody. And I gotta fight everybody about everything. And I would also encourage you to avoid social justice. I have to fix everything. I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to save anyone. God will do that. I just need to live faithfully. And so I I think if we would avoid those two things and we would strike a balance somewhere in the middle and we would just like be normal, we would be effective. It's hard. That's why prayer is attached to this. But lastly, just live out the truth of God with faithfulness to the gospel, with a desire to please God. We don't need to antagonize unbelievers. Neither do we need to alienate ourselves from unbelievers. And in some sense, just don't be weird or obnoxious like you're an actor in a Christian film. I live by that. I'm being honest. Christian film, that annoys me. I'll watch these Christian films and I'll be like, I've never acted like that at work. Like, never. I've never done that. So just be normal. A normal person who follows Christ. I'm sorry. That's why I didn't mention any particular film. I'm just speaking very generically there. But to live wisely is to live differently as well. And that's what Paul's driving at. The word walk, literally, it has the implication of the way that we live is distinctively different as the gospel reorders our lives. Your priorities and values in life are eternally different. Not that anything drastically changed when we came here, but when we moved here and we were kind of, we were kind of detailing out schools and transitions and so on, and helping kids adjust and think through from a Christian understanding of things. Again, none of this, anything I say here is not new, but I admonished him in three ways. I said, first, 
even if you're in a Christian school, or you're a public school, wherever you are, you need to express biblical truth when necessary. And do it in a way that is not combative. Second thing I've told them is, is that choose your close friends wisely who share the gospel, share gospel commitments with us. Because if you don't, then I'm going to get involved and you don't want me choosing all your friends. So anyway. And then establish church and your relationships within the church and your discipleship in the church as your highest priority over all other commitments. Because what goes on with us together is so critical for those relationships and for that growth and for, that, for our witness to the world. And what I've said to them over and over again is that when people see those simple things, they'll know you're different. They'll know you're different. And if you really are a believer, you will root it in the fact that we follow Jesus as Lord and not just a bunch of rules we're trying to conjure up. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, listen to that, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, I mean, hopefully they will become believers and they'll glorify God, but even if they don't, that doesn't change your conduct. That doesn't change the way you live. Walk in wisdom. And part of that wisdom is to try and seek to glorify God in the way that you live before unbelievers. And prayer empowers us to walk in this kind of wisdom. But notice what Paul says, because there's one other little part of this verse. Look at it. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, what, what does he mean by that? What he means by the best use of the time, you, you could literally translate that to say, to redeem it. That's how it's translated in Ephesians, redeeming the time, because we see the days are evil. Or you could say, to buy it up. Like, one, one, common, one commentator says, like, snap it up like a bargain. How many of you like to bargain shop? I'm waiting for my wife to raise her hand. She likes to bargain shop. She's good at it, by the way. I always ask her when she comes home, would you get me? Because I like what she finds. But, but that's what he means, like, right? Like, like, redeem the time, buy it up. Take the bargain of time you're given. You know why? Because bargains are hard to find, and they quickly pass. And time and opportunities that God gives us in time, they're the same way. Hear me. God has placed you and planted you in the places you find yourself, to seize the opportunities for the gospel. Sometimes it's just glaringly evident, right? Kid in class says Jesus Christ, and he's not worshiping in that moment. And I look at him and I say, I'm glad you brought him up. And all of a sudden, all the kids are looking, and I'll say, now what do you want to know about him? And I'm smiling. I'm not being, I'm not being antagonistic. And the kid just looks at me like, with a, like, I can't believe he's asking me this. And I'll say, do you, do you want to talk about his death on the cross? Because I love that. Or do you want to talk about his, his resurrection from the dead? Because that's amazing. And then the kid just looks and I say, you know, here's the deal, man. Don't say Jesus' name unless you really are wanting to worship him or talk to me about him. Because that's what that does for me. 
You see, I, I'm just saying like, now, I, I don't do that all the time. Sometimes I just get aggravated. So don't walk away and think, wow, super Christian. No, please, don't do that. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you that wherever you are, whether it's listening to or praying with a coworker, inviting someone to church to hear the word, or just plainly speaking the gospel, you need, we need to be aware of the opportunities that are around us. You know why? Because you're never speaking to a mere mortal. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, you have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, that we marry, that we snub, that we exploit. Immortal souls who will either experience the horrors of hell or the everlasting splendors of heaven. Wow. I need to make use of the time because I am an immortal walking around with other immortals who are going somewhere. And the only way they can have salvation is through Jesus Christ. Do you see how that raises the importance of how we live and the moments that we seize for the gospel? And sometimes we don't have the opportunities to speak. But we always have the opportunity to live. And so, I love that quote by Tolkien. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And we as Christians must decide that we are going to make the best use of our time. And our goal should be this. Leave a gospel impression on the lives of others as you seek to lead them to Christ. Even if you never get to sit with them and lead them to Christ personally, may it be said that your interaction with them as unbelievers, no matter how far off it was from what you believe, that you left in them an, an impression of the gospel, that Christ redeemed you, and that it is the greatest message that has ever been unleashed in human history. So let me ask you this as we apply this truth. Where do you need wisdom toward unbelievers? What opportunities do you need to seize for the gospel? Who's out there in your mind that you need to have a conversation with, that you just need to pray with, that you need to perhaps love? Whatever it might be, what is the opportunity? And here's the prayer prompt. Pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom to face the current challenges and to engage others with the gospel because this isn't easy. We are living in unprecedented times of spiritual darkness and confusion. In my stretch, in the last stretch that I had when I was involved in, in, in education, I can't the, the number one conversation that I had between colleagues and sometimes amongst even students was the gender and the, all the LGBTQ stuff. And trying to understand where they're coming from and lead them to the reality that the reason I believe what I believe is because the scriptures reveal that there is a creator who has made us in his image, designed us for his glory, and that all of his ways are good. And to tie that into the gospel. That we need wisdom. 
And when you apply that to navigating teenagers and college students and as they embark on their next stage in life and they're walking into university, do you see why prayer is attached to this? Oh, how much wisdom we need. And how, how, how subtle the devil's lies are to deter us from the truth, which is the light, just a slight twist and a, sli- a slight subversion from what God has revealed. And the reason it's important is because the gospel's at stake. And I need to move on because there's a third thing. So we have said that prayer, what prayer does, move on to the next one. Don't know how that happened. All right. So, so, the, so the next, the, the one that I want you to see here is, th- th- let's review real quickly. Prayer empowers us to walk in wisdom. Prayer in, it equips us to intercede with others. But the last thing that I want to say is prayer enables us to speak with grace. I want you to look at the next verse. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so notice what he says. Our words, we need to be enabled to speak with grace. I think he says that because our tendency is to speak with harshness, isn't it? And and so our words, our speech, should overflow with gospel grace. What's the most powerful force in the world? I mean, we would probably throw out all sorts of answers, right? Right? We'd go to, you know, engineering and we'd go to, you know, aerodynamics and all sorts of things. But, you know, the Bible's clear that the, the most powerful force in the world is the tongue. The Bible says in Proverbs that death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18. Our words and our speech are the most powerful force in the world. If you don't believe me, go to James chapter 3 and read verses 1 through 12 about the tongue about the need to bridle the tongue, about the danger of the tongue, about the, how quickly we are to, on one, on one, in one moment we can bless someone, and on the next moment we can slice them in the pieces. Our words are powerful. And so Paul says here that our speech must always be gracious. Always be gracious. Other translations say full of grace. If a cup is full, if I have a glass up here and it's full to the top, you know what? That means it has no room for anything else. Touch it, move it, slot, whatever you do, it's just going to pour over. It's going to overflow. And Paul is saying here that the believer should be filled with so much grace. You move us, you, 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 you poke us, you pinch us, whatever you do, it's going to just overflow with grace. And so... That's important today because everyone is full of rage. Have you noticed? I mean, right? I mean, you don't have to, I mean, you turn your TV on and watch any of the news networks. You can go to your, your, your social media and you can just start scrolling. Everyone is full of rage. And you make anybody mad, guess what? It, the potential of it just appearing out there on social media is really high. We're full of rage. And every issue today seems to be a life or death issue. Let me just ask you some questions. Does your speech give life or does it bring death? Apply that to your interactions online. Does your speech burn bridges or build bridges for you to walk over with the gospel? Is your speech filled with rage or is it full of grace? 
Does your speech show a desire to be right or a desire to be redemptive? A desire to be right or a desire to be redemptive? You see, all those questions are just leading us to, am I speaking grace into people's lives? That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. That we're to speak grace into people's lives. Our words should be full of grace. Listen, as believers, we're not angry. And we're not anxious. But so much that I hear that, that comes about in the, in, the, in, the, in the larger Christian conversation is just filled with rage and anxiety and anger. And if we're not being gracious, then we need to revisit the gospel. Our words should be gracious even when we must speak what is difficult. Even when we have to speak the truth, our words should be gracious because our gospel is grace. Our gospel is grace towards sinners. And so we should be full of grace, but our words should also prompt gospel interest. Listen to what he says. Seasoned with salt. Salt gives flavor, and it will create craving, doesn't it? It makes the mouth water. As we speak and relate what we believe, as we interact with other people, our hope is that the gospel will become attractive and inviting. Isn't that what the psalmist says? Come, taste the Lord, and see that he is good. When people interact with us and walk with us and see us on a day-to-day basis, well, they're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. But what should happen is, is that through our speech and conversation, they should see the hope of the gospel and see that the Lord is good. Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, You are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so if our speech is going to be seasoned with salt, then we need to engage people with redemption. And again, go back to what we've said, and it's, this ties into other things we've said. Read the testimony of Rosaria, Butterf- Rosaria Butterfield and her conversion experience. I mean, a complete unbeliever, atheist. She was the head of the, the uh, gender and gay lesbian studies at a major university. And simply through the kindness and friendship of a Presbyterian pastor and his wife, she became a Christian. After two years of them just welcoming her into their home, getting to know her, trying to understand her, and then eventually sharing, and over that time, just sharing their life and worldview with her. It's just beautiful. Our problem is we don't take time to do that kind of thing. We're constantly thinking about our reaction, our next tweet, our next post, how we can win in the arena of words rather than to compel to the heart. Remember, hear me. The goal is not to win an argument, it's to win a soul. And being harsh and intentionally offensive will not accomplish that. It will not accomplish that. It doesn't mean I have to cater to people, but I don't have to crush them either if I'm caring for their soul. And so that leads to the last thing that he says quickly, our words should answer with gospel truth. Now put it all together. If our words are full of grace, seasoned with salt, then you will know how you should answer each person. That means you will give solemn testimony to the truth. No compromising truth there. You'll give solemn testimony to the truth. 
You'll be able to proclaim the gospel into any issue. Here's how the gospel relates to this. To hear me, knowing what you ought to say doesn't just mean, because that's what he says, isn't it? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then we jump up like, yeah, that's right. I got the answers. No. Knowing what you ought to say doesn't mean that you have to, you, you just have the right answer that will clinch the argument and make you look magnificent. Knowing what you ought to say means you know what to say, when to say it, and listen, how to say it. How to say it. And you will give hope to others if you do that. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your heart honors Christ, the, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense of any, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Listen to what he says. Yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. He's not talking about respecting people that agree with you. He's talking about respecting people who might just want to kill you. That's God's word. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Say it with gentleness. Say it with care and empathy. Say it with respect to other human beings creating the image of God. And I'll tell you, every preacher needs to saturate in that. Ask my wife, the first question that I will ask when I leave this room, how was my tone in the sermon? I don't ask her how was my content. She doesn't get to touch that. She answers the tone. You know why? Because I'm not worried about what is said so long as it's faithful to the word of God. That can be, that can be questioned as long as it, we have to be faithful to the word of God. But if it's, faithful to, if it's faithful to the word of God, I care about how it's said. Because I want to say it as the scripture tells us to say it. So that leads us to the truth applied. Do you overflow with grace toward others? Pray that we will communicate truth in every way with truth and kindness. I've gone along this morning. You may say, well, you go along every Sunday morning, but okay. <laughs> Gospel-driven prayer reminds us that we must speak to God as we live before and witness to unbelievers. It means that you will be equipped, that you will be equipped, you will be enabled to speak with grace, you will be empowered to walk in wisdom and you will be equipped to pray for others. You know Hudson Taylor would go on to be a missionary to China for 51 years and give his whole life to the spread of the gospel. His mother's prayers became a rock to him, not only for his conversion, but for his whole life. Praying these kinds of prayers that we've gone over this morning, that God will equip us, empower us, enable us, is so critical to our Christian life. How will the gospel drive your prayers as you leave today? How do you need to start praying today in a way that you haven't prayed before? Paul said to Corinthians, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Church, let us have gospel-driven prayers as the people of God. Let's stand. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired word. For anything that I have misspoken or said in a way that would not be faithful to your word, forgive me, but Holy Spirit, use the truth of your word to transform our prayer lives, to pray for others 
and pray the way we should, to be empowered to walk in wisdom. There are people here today facing things that would have been unheard of even 10 years ago. May our prayers help us to, uh, may we pray that we would be empowered to walk in wisdom and may our prayers enable us to speak grace. Help us to be grace-filled people. Do your work in our hearts through your word in Jesus' name. Amen.